Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Our first scripture is from Peter, um, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual affection, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable but imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. And then our gospel reading for today from John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And the word became flesh, and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here at Kingstown, we are working our way through a sermon series called Wordle. We are in week four now, six stabs, eight stabs, however many stabs it ends up being, um, <laughs> uh, at understanding the Bible. Um, because you all have so many questions about understanding the Bible. Who, who, what is it? What is it for? Who wrote it? Why these books? Who, who really wrote it, right? Um, do you really believe it's the actual word or words or inspiration from the mouth of God? What do we do with all these errors in it? How am I supposed to talk about the Bible? What is this thing? What do I call this thing? How do I speak about this thing? And so, um, before we get started today, let's do just a teeny bit of review for those of you who haven't been with us on the journey before. On week one, we talked about what the Bible is not, um, that the Bible is not a magic eight ball, the Bible is, um, is not a book of theology, the Bible is not a science textbook, the Bible um, is um, not even the, um, the promises of God, 
It's not a book of promises of God. Um, and so we didn't answer what it is. And we're doing that throughout. Then week two, we talked about the canon. Um, and what is the canon and the Old Testament? How was it compiled and setting it next to the Hebrew scriptures and how they were compiled and how ours is kind of compiled weird compared to theirs. And theirs actually had a, a whole lot of purpose in ordering it based on level of authority. And then finally, week three, um, last week, we dug into this word scribe which I realized was not five letters, it's six letters. So it could have been probably better, better should have been the word right. Um, and we talked about what, who wrote it and what does it matter? How does it matter? Beginning with the letters of Paul um, and what it means for us to read the New Testament like it's someone else's mail. Like it was mail sent to somebody else, not to us. And today, we're on our fourth word, which I stuck in there, speak. Um, so when I originally wrote and outlined this sermon series, I did not have this word in mind. But I had to tuck it in there because your questions are too big and I can't fit it all into one sermon. Um, and y'all did not sign up for a three-hour uh, seminary class. You didn't sign up for that. And so um, I'm trying to break it down into manageable chunks. So last week the word scribe, but should have been the word write, with today's crucial partner to that word, speak. So there are so many ways to speak about the Bible, right? So many ways. We, even if we are here going, hey, Michelle, you're supposed to tell us how to speak about the Bible. You, if you grew up in church in any way, shape, or form, you spoke about the Bible, or people around you spoke about it in some way. As children, we learned that, that song that spoke about it, the B-I-B-L-E. And what else did we say about that? We stand on it. We stand up on it. And the B-I-B-L-E, that didn't tell us very much, right? That song says it's not very deep. Um, and then as adults, in like a church like this, we use a very particular set of words right after we read scripture that the Bible is the word of God. for the people. Yeah. And those of us who maybe grew up in some more um, evangelical settings, we may have heard people talk about the Bible as the inerrant, infallible word of God. We might have heard those words attached to it. Um, I'm opening it up. What else have you heard the Bible? How, how have you heard the Bible talked about before? Have you heard people speak about the Bible? It doesn't have to be just in church either. Feel free. Inspiration. Divine inspiration. Perfect. Yeah, divine inspiration is a way we talk about the Bible. How else? Unquestionable. Unquestionable. Oh, gosh. Man, I'm a heretic. <laughs> Unquestionable. Anybody else? Like, how else have you heard people talk about the Bible? Outdated, yeah, that's, that's what we hear from the, our folks out, yeah, in, outside the church, right? Um, so we learned last week that the Gospels, the Gospels weren't actually written first. The story of the Gospels, the good news of Jesus Christ, by those very first seers and believers, it was, it was spoken first. The Gospels were not written first. Speaking of our faith, about what we think this book is, 
about Jesus is a crucial part of what it means to be a thoughtful, responsive, engaged Christian, right? And every week here, you come not to sit around quietly and open up a Bible and read it to yourselves. You come to hear someone speak something about a text, to speak about God and how that relates to your life, to proclaim, to speak some kind of good news for you. So the oral tradition of speaking about how we've encountered God and proclaiming that good news for others to hear is, it's what we do. It's what we do as the church, and we would say it is crucial to the business of the church that we do that. Would you want to come here if I just handed you a Bible and said, read it? I know you know it's important, otherwise you wouldn't pay me for this, right? And so we say it's the word of God that is what is read here, but, but also it's how that word is proclaimed and interpreted when we say it. The word of God being also what is spoken here by the people who speak things about the Bible. Peter, uh, one of the first apostles, even talked about it this way. He said, the word of God will endure forever. You heard our scripture this morning. It will endure forever. It will stand the test of time. Why? Because it's the good news that is being announced to you. Peter suggests that it is the speaking of that word that ensures its longevity, its endurance throughout time, perhaps even more than the recording of it. So last week we started with the writing of this word. We learned last week that it was actually Paul's letters to a handful of early, early churches that became the first nucleus of what we call the New Testament. And, and they were all written in response to the circumstances of the time and the questions that all these people had, all the challenges these earliest Christians were encountering as they thought, sought to be Christians within these earliest church planted moments with Paul. And so many of these, many of these challenges emerged because for the first century after Jesus' death, there were no recorded gospels. There was nothing written, nothing definitive in writing that they could read and make sense of and build a theology off of. And I wonder if that, if that blew your mind last Sunday, like hang with that for a second. To imagine these earliest Christians, the Jewish ones, of which had scrolls of like the Psalms and the, the prophets and the book of the Torah, but no one had the Gospels. All they could rely on was the oral retelling of the gospel, sitting around fires and courtyards, huddling together in upper rooms. All they had were the words and works of Jesus proclaimed out the mouths of people who saw it or people who knew someone who, who had seen it or people who had been told the story and then committed their lives to the retelling of it over and over again. Which leaves us with a lot of questions, right? When were, when were the Gospels written and why were they not written before the letters of Paul? Why, why were they oral for so long? Who are, who are these gospel writers and, and why did they wait to write this down? 
And, and why are Matthew and Mark and Luke so similar while John paints this very different picture of Jesus? And even, even when they were finally written down, how was it decided which of these originally spoken stories of the good news of Jesus would even end up into the Bible itself? Because we all know there were many of these originally spoken stories. Why these? And if they were all only spoken for for so long, long before recorded, if they were all only spoken before they were recorded, how is it that people ever came to trust them? How is it that, that we trust them now? And what does it mean for us as believers and readers today, right? That these words were originally spoken. And every week in a place like this, as we open up this text to receive the good news of God in our lives, we speak our own set of words, like we said before, about this is the word of God, but is it? That's the next question. Is it? What does that even mean? And how can it truly be God's real and relevant word if the words on the page were just a hundred-year-old memory of what this man who is said to be the one who changed everything said and did in a particular time and place? Are you exhausted by the questions? So let's try to tackle at least most of them. Um, and to do this, let's return to our timeline that we had last week. And like I said last week, this timeline has been debated, but the consensus among scholars is that the Gospels were written between 70 and 90 AD. And, and the precipitating factor for their writing was the death of the eyewitnesses themselves the death of that first generation of Christians who actually knew Christ. As modern, literate people who have countless abilities to record the, the proceedings of things and the teachings of people, and as people who value it more than ever and can access it better than ever in this online age, this is so hard for us to understand but for the earliest Christians, as long as the disciples were still alive, there was no urgency in, in, in writing down the story. It, it was to be spoken. The disciples shared their stories with others, like passionately shared them, who shared it with others who passionately shared it. In fact, this oral kind of presentation by the eyewitnesses was valued far more than anything written. So when Paul's letters came on the scene, they were supplemental to the oral stories told in their midst. But with the death of the apostles, some understood the importance of now capturing and writing the story of Jesus' life, teaching, ministry, death, resurrection, as, as the eyewitnesses had told it. And so here's a thing we know, the gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were not the first attempts to write this story down either. Luke even tells us that. Luke says in the beginning of his gospel, um, since many have under, undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, I having investigated everything carefully myself from the, um, <laughs> from the very first, decided I should write my own account too. That's how he begins his gospel. 
There were earlier documents that were written around the same time as Paul's letters even. Many, um, while many of the apostles were still alive, there were some that were written, but they were not regular, regularly circulated. They were not readily available to anybody to read. And so Luke makes note of these at the beginning, but Luke and the other gospels weren't written until about 70 to 90 AD after the death of that first generation of Jesus um, Jesus. Uh, witnesses. And, and as we read these four Gospels, something very puzzling emerges. There seems to be this uncanny relationship between three of these Gospels. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. Very similar in the way they present Jesus. They're, they're there are some key differences, but they share so many of the same stories and contain much of the same teaching and paint a very similar portrait of Jesus. And this is why they have come to be known as the synoptic gospels. And so this word synoptic um, means, it's from the Greek and it's like syn, meaning with, and opticus, meaning to see. And so it's, they see with one another. They see the whole story with one another. There are verses that appear in all three Gospels. There are a small number of verses that appear in Luke and Mark, but do not appear in Matthew. There are more verses in Mark that appear in Matthew, but not in Luke. There are a significant amount of material that appears in Matthew and Luke, but does not appear in Mark. And then there's material unique to Matthew and other material that is unique to Luke. And so if these Gospels were written after the death of that first generation of eyewitnesses, then then where did all this material come from? The overlap and the lack of overlap across the three is like quite a bit of puzzle or a wordle, you might say. <laughs> so there is a whole seminary class on just this puzzle. But, but here's the consensus opinion today among biblical scholars. It's called the four-source hypothesis. Picking up on what Luke told us at the beginning of his gospel, it is believed that there were others who sought to write down elements of Jesus' story, though they weren't known, perhaps collections of his sayings and accounts of his miracles and passion narratives of his death and resurrection in the first couple of decades of the Christian faith. And all four of our gospels were written in Greek, which was the language of the Gentile world, but it is possible also that some early collections of Jesus' materials were written in Aramaic, the native language of Jesus and the apostles. It is generally believed that Mark was the first of the four Gospels, and based on what of Luke and Matthew is found in Mark, Mark is the largest source of material for both Matthew and Luke. But Matthew and Luke share another source we know because about 25% of Matthew and Luke is not found in Mark. And it's important, core material, like Jesus' teachings on the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes and Jesus' words during his temptation. The problem is that this original source has not been found. So one German scholar came up with this name commonly used for this lost source, and he called it Q. If you are thinking of another Q right now, yes, it was based off of this. For the German word 
quell, meaning simply source. Source being this kind of, I guess they, the other Q is using it, um, uh, Q anon is using it to say we are this anonymous source, right? They're, they're basing it off of this. Thus the four source hypothesis. So what does this mean? This means that when we read these gospels in the context of worship, you'll hear me say things like Luke said this, or according to Matthew, but really with the exception of those pieces that exist across all three and could possibly date back to a very, very old eyewitness mark, perhaps, much of their material was written and compiled by people living within communities who, who knew M and L, Matthew and Luke and Q, whoever Q might be, but not M and L and Q themselves. So when I say according to Matthew, you should hear the complexity of that, which includes a little mark, a little M and a little Q. Confusing? Interesting? I hope so. You asked for this, sorry. <laughs> so when you look at this, what's missing? Yeah, thank you. So John, at least you know your four gospels, good. Um, so when you look at this, yeah, um, John's missing. Um, what about John? Where does John fit in all of this? Of, of whose who scripture we read this morning and worship? Well, did you hear it as, you, as we read John? John was written about another decade after Matthew and Mark and Luke, but did you hear the difference when you read, when you read it? Have you ever paid attention to the difference of John from, from the very first sentence? We get a sense of how radically different John is from, from everyone else. In John, we get something else entirely. Unlike Matthew and Luke and Mark, John doesn't attempt to write a biography of Jesus. He didn't attempt to do it. Or he would have told us a little bit more about what happened at his birth and who was there. His approach is completely different. Clement of Alexandria, one of the earliest leaders in the church in the second century, he famously explains the writing of this fourth gospel like this. He says, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the gospels, being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, set out to compose a spiritual gospel. In John, we get a book that, rather than telling us what happened, explains the significance of Jesus' life. John is far less focused on telling his readers what Jesus said and did, and instead focuses on making plain who Jesus is and what his life means. So, for instance, John repeatedly associates Jesus with God. It is John who gives the I am statements. I am statements of Jesus. Jesus didn't just break bread. Jesus is the bread of life, John says. Jesus didn't just roll the stone away. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, John says. Jesus didn't just guide his disciples and shepherd them and lead and pastor the crowds. He was the good shepherd, right? So in the synoptic gospels, Jesus speaks in parables all the time, simple stories that illustrate spiritual truths. But in John, Jesus is the parable. Jesus himself is the parable. Jesus is the metaphor through all of John. 
But with John comes a whole lot of contradiction too. And in, in an effort to write this spiritual gospel, he did not get all the facts straight, or maybe he did, I don't know. Um, John tells a story that sometimes contradicts the details and chronology of the other gospels. Like in the synoptics, most of Jesus's ministry takes place in Galilee. In John, it takes place in Jerusalem. In John, the Last Supper happens on the night before Passover Seder, while all the other gospels say it is on Passover night itself. And honestly, I don't think John really ever cared. Well, John said he was the best of all of them. Over and over again, he told us, right? The one that Jesus loved. Um, Because getting a correct chronology of Jesus's life is not John's primary concern, right? His concern is instead to make clear Jesus's divine identity and to help readers to see how faith in and relationship with Jesus brings life to our lives and to all of, all of humankind. So whether source M or L or Q or this radically different J, written likely by a student of John, probably, long after his, his death, they had communities, that you, they would have called that the Johannine community. There were communities around Paul too, the Pauline community. Each source, despite, <laughs> despite whether source, all these sources, um, each source emerged out of someone's first spoken retelling. Spoken retelling, proclaiming of what they had witnessed. Or spoken story about how God changed their lives on the mount or in the upper room or at the tomb of Jesus. And these stories were first spoken, uttered in community, and while that can leave us skeptical of their, their reliability. It also should feel, should feel very relatable to us as Christians, gathered here for the purpose of trying to figure out how we might talk about our faith, make sense of our faith, talk about this book, this, this Jesus in history and in our hearts, right? So these documents are more complex than we might have first supposed, but... The fact that they were first spoken is, it's a gift to me. The fact that it was first spoken. A reminder of of the Christian community and the call to share the good news of our lives, transformed by the living God in our own life, but also a reminder of how God works now, even in our midst, right? It's also why I love It's like my favorite book, y'all, why I love, love John. Because John seems to get on this, get on a level that maybe all of us are called to get to. (laughs) That the who and the how of the Bible was written isn't the most important question. What the the word of God is isn't, isn't the most important question, but rather how it was told and proclaimed and who it was told by and how they talked about it and retold and reproclaimed that in their very real lives and in communities of believers throughout time, right? As, as Peter said, it's, it wouldn't have been long-lasting if people didn't tell the story. John's gospel begins with this explanation that the word of God, it wasn't just recorded, this chronologically accurate account, right? 
this biography of Jesus, but it begins by saying it was made flesh in Jesus to walk among us. It was, or as one version says, it took on human form and came and moved into the neighborhood with us. It was the God that spoke to the earliest disciples, and it's, it's that God that continues to speak to us today. And so would you pray with me that God would speak to you wherever you are in your life today? Let us pray. God, we, we're thankful that in every household in America there is a Bible. It's written down and recorded, but we also know, um, we know the reality of our own lives, and we know the reality of the world that so many of those recorded books are sitting there, unopened, dusty, because the writing it down wasn't what changed everything. Writing it down, we can easily tuck it away. But when we're forced to know it, when it hangs on our lips, and not the kind of knowing where you quote scripture and verse, but the kind of knowing of like, I know who God is. Because of what God's done before, but because what God has done for me. I know who Jesus is, because I know Jesus' love in my life, and I know Jesus' love for you. That's a whole different thing. That is what, God, that's what brings us to this space. <laughs> that's what makes people dust off their Bibles. We thank you, God, that it was spoken among believers in the early church and that it's spoken here. It's spoken when we proclaim the word and it's spoken when we share our lives together and we share the things in our lives that are, hurt, that are the hardest and the things that are the most joyous and we look at it and we say, where is God in that? God, there are people in our midst I know who are needing you to speak to them today. Speak a fresh word to them today so that they can feel some, they can't even get it to get, they can't get, the, the voice won't come out right now. They can't, it just, it's too much. So God, I ask that you would speak to them. If you spoke to your disciples, you can speak to us. And we pray that prayer, God, that it was offered to us from some anonymous cue who heard Jesus pray it that first time and thought, oh, wow, what a prayer. Pray that prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 